0: You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode number 29 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. As we start the new year, the year of 2022, and get ready for some new podcast episodes, I thought it would be nice to revisit a conversation from Season 1, a conversation with Max Hardy and Anth Boxall. Please enjoy. Anthony Boxall and Max Hardy joined me from Melbourne, Australia, for a dive into authentic co-design, the stories of where it came from, and some of the different angles on how, when, and why you would use a co-design process. In our conversation, Max brings the engagement expertise, while Anth brings the leadership, scientist and government expertise. Together, they're quite a package. This was a good conversation. It was so good in fact, we recorded it twice. I hope you have as much fun listening to it as I did speaking with Max and Anth. Please enjoy. Good
1: morning,
2: guys. How are you?
1: Very well. I think at least I can speak for myself. I'm fine. How are you,
0: Anth?
2: No, really well. Yeah, really well. It's it's a weird morning here. It's lovely. It's going to be hot, but it's going to rain.
0: You know, we're going in the opposite direction here in Alberta. We're going into the tank. It's supposed to hit just a little below 30 below tonight. So yes, a tiny bit of a contrast. So yesterday, Scott, here it was 30 Celsius above. Right. Well, that's a bit too hot. So I prefer something in the middle.
2: Oh, no, we call that the middle.
1: <laughs> yeah, It's just, its uh, it's been a mild summer down yeah, here.
2: It's mild. Normally, this time of the year, kids go back to school and it hits 42. Uh, yeah, still too hot. <laughs> you know, for the,
0: the folks listening, it's going to sound like we've had this conversation before because we actually have had this conversation before. We recorded a session, geez, what was it, a couple of weeks ago now, and had a technical glitch where we lost the audio and you know, i have to say thanks max and anth for agreeing to to do it all over again and to the people who are listening you're going to hear maybe something that almost sounds like inside uh, discussion because we've been down this road before so we'll see see how well that goes so thank you for coming back and trying it again oh we had so much fun the first time
1: that's right although <laughs> i just hope i hope we didn't peak too early <laughs> but we'll we'll try and turn it on again
0: Okay, right, well, well, let's just kick it off. Can you guys introduce yourselves and, and kind of where you're, well, one, where you're joining from and a, a little bit of your background? Sure.
1: We're well, joining from Melbourne, Australia, my background is that I've been a community engagement collaboration practitioner for a little over 20 years now. And it was about five years ago, I think, that I met Anthony and uh, I was doing some work for the EPA, and they had a challenge and invited me in to see whether they could co-design a solution to something very tricky. And I'll get Anth to talk about that in a moment. But uh, that's how we ended up meeting. And we've been doing some work around co-design approaches to complex issues in more recent years when Anth jumped out of his public service role and, and into his current consulting role. So we've teamed up and continued to do some work together.
2: Nice intro, Max. My background beyond that, Scott, as Max alluded to, is I'm so I'm not a um, engagement professional at all. In fact, I'm a marine ecologist by trade, um, so I'm a scientist, and so I've spent time in government, private, and um, academia, and I tend and I've tended to be involved in running big. Complex science things, um, in particular where they interact with the community, and so when what Max was referring to was when I was at the Environment Protection Authority, the EPA, I was involved in running the science part of the organisation. We had so many important regulatory conversations we needed to have with impacted communities that I got into the swing of kind of expecting that this is going to be very hard. I've always had a very deep interest in citizen science and so have always been involved in building citizen science programs with communities. And when we got to this gnarly thing, which we can talk about later, this incident, uh, where we needed to to build trust again, our engagement people said, we've got this guy, Max, and um, he's done, he's published books on this stuff. It's working together with communities, see how it goes, and we... Um, we met, and uh, you know, I must say, I've told this story to other audiences. When I first met Max, I thought, "Oh, hang on, oh, geez, this is going to be a bit hard. Geez, this is a bit scary. This guy's talking about things that we don't normally do." Anyway, so we can get into that a bit later if you want, Scott. But um, yeah, I do a bit of board work as well. So I work with with senior leaders and try and get them to think about how they can think differently about their decisions. One thing you mentioned,
0: and, and I think we'll get to the example in just a second, but I'm kind of curious. Because if I remember, the the example is kind of speaks to the genesis of this thing that you mentioned, Max, called authentic co-design. And I'm curious if you could give kind of a snapshot of what that is and what it includes. Yeah, authentic
1: co-design, as we framed it, after considering calling it fair dinkum co-design, we thought that was no, that sounded as very much an Australianism. But we went with authentic co-design for us. That means it is about doing something that is real that is going to lead to a result it is something that is appropriate for complex issues and for us it means that people are working together on something which is substantial which is one of our principles of authentic co-design that it is a significant piece of work that will be done by people collaborating and not just getting to the point where they're collaborating on a solution but building relationships and co-designing the process before Actually, then co designing a solution together. So, for us, essentially, that's what it is about. I guess it's different to the way government usually tackles a complex issue where they do lots and lots of research for a really long time and go out to the community with their plan, with their solution and inviting comment, feedback. And so, this is going in to the community saying, Wow, this is really tricky. We need your help. We need to work together. And not just with the community, but also with other stakeholders so maybe working across uh, several government agencies It might involve working with business whoever you know is defined as being the community of interest around a particular complex issue
0: i'm curious to to hear about this example that where this the genesis of this idea of co-design or authentic co-design and do you want
2: to give a the lead into that and yeah sure Okay, I can do the, high, the kind of, you know, the background. Um, it's interesting too because um, both of us, and particularly Max, have been doing the, this kind of work for many years and I'd been doing it in a way without understanding that's what had been happening through the kind of parts of the citizen science approaches. But it, what, what happened was there was a very large fire in a coal mine with a town of about 7,000 people living literally on the edge of the coal mine. In fact, the town had been moved, you know, to get to the coal over decades. It's in an area in our state, which is called Victoria, which is kind of, was kind of the industrial base of the, of the state. So it was, you know, socioeconomically lower than some other parts of the state. There was a long term view that our area had been, you know, kind of forgotten for, by governments for years of all different persuasions because we were just seen as you know the kind of poorer part where the where the industrial workers were and this fire happened and of course coal being coal the fire fires and coal mines are bad things there's one in pennsylvania that started in the 1880s that's still going you know so these things go for a long time what happened was it went for 45 days and it became two types of emergencies. It became the fire emergency, and then it also became a health emergency. And as the regulator, we were trying to help people understand what the impacts were live. And, you know, after successive inquiries, got to the point where, you know, put our hands up and said, it didn't work. We, we weren't able to do that well. The community gave us strong feedback. Community, great deal of community anger, distrust, dissatisfaction, built on decades, as I said, of... Of a particular perception, and all of a sudden we were faced with having to go to that community. This is about a year and a half after the fire was out, and say, look, we you know we heard uh, we we want to put in a whole new scientific net monitoring network so that if this ever happens again, whoops, bad thing to say, um, you know <laughs> we you know we want to be able to kind of monitor you. Here's what we're going to do, and um, that was the point at which I I said to our engagement people, and they said to me, can we do this differently? I was a bit scared by that, to be honest, and that's when Max kind of went, "No, no," you know, Max's voice of reason and experience said, "Let's let's ask them, let's ask them what they want," and that was hard for scientists. Max, what do you want to build onto that one?
1: Oh yeah, well, it was it was uh, it was kind of um, what was interesting about being invited into the space was the EPA said we really think we need a different approach, and we think co-design is the way to go. By the way. What is co-design? So they, they were asking me to come in. But it was yeah. it was such a, a new concept that it was it was there was a lot of uncertainty there. And I think one of the things that was kind of helped the EPA embrace it was a couple of things. One is they had Anthony on the inside who was kind of championing this idea and was building internal support. The other was the realization they had very little to lose and they had a track record of conventional approaches not going so well, which tended to lead to drawn-out processes that just seemed to fuel mistrust and being done to by government. So talking about, well, you actually don't have a lot to lose by going in and saying, how might we work together to figure this out and can you help us? Because, you know, government doesn't always know what's right for people or right for communities. And it wasn't about sort of not valuing the expertise that scientists had. I think that was important, but it was also an awareness that the community also had a lot of lived experience and knowledge of what it's like living in that particular area and that experience was actually also useful to take on board. So it wasn't about saying government doesn't know, community knows everything. It was, well, government knows stuff, scientists know stuff, the communities know stuff. (laughs) How might we tap into that collective wisdom to come up with an enduring solution to continue working together in that way. And so, you know, there were some baby steps and it was certainly tested and challenged from time to time, but it was it is uncomfortable for government and right up to the top I guess we have government ministers who say well, you know, basically it's in my it's in my job description, I'm responsible ultimately I have to make the decisions about this stuff. And so how does this fit? How does this co-designing a solution fit with that kind of, you know, that um, what's happening in terms of the legal responsibility that government ministers ultimately may have. And so it's not about government not being responsible. It was about, it's another way of exercising responsibility. And that was kind of like some framing that I think was quite helpful for the people in the EPA. You're not giving away your responsibility, you're not walking away from it. This is just another way of exercising it by actually working out the solution with others and those who are affected.
0: How did the sort of the state of emergency play into it? Like how I know that during the emergency and after, so before and during and after an emergency are different kind of stages of an emergency. I'm curious how this approach, kind of a co-design approach,
2: fits into the various phases of that emergency process. That's a really good question. And I think that there's no doubt that when you're in a leadership role in a government or corporation or something, and something has happened, you know, a state of emergency, like you described, a major disruption, that then (laughs) we have this saying of, you know, never, never lose the opportunity provided by a crisis. And so while you don't want to be in the middle of an actual emergency trying to change practice, what you do need to be doing is seeding. Well, gosh, when we come out of here, there's a point in an emergency and having been through a few of them there's a point in emergency where people's minds suddenly go to recovery, which is that th- third phase that you're talking about, Scott. And so when that naturally occurs, that's when those of the, the people inside organizations who are aware of different ways of doing things, who see the problems of the past, can say, Oh gosh, you know, this, you know, maybe we should just take this time to reflect and think about something differently. And that's been happening post-COVID, or not post-COVID, but with COVID, I think a lot of places have pivoted that word, but that's what's happening. And it's partly about looking for different uh, ways of doing things. The challenge, of course, is that in the preparation phase, which is the one before the actual response to the emergency, you, you at least need to have the language, you need to be prepared. So I would argue that this is not just about emergencies. It's about lots of different places, authentic co-design, code lots of different times and places. The time to be skilled up and prepared is before nothing goes wrong. But the time you might get to use it most likely is after something's gone wrong.
0: Yeah. Well, because in the in the emergency itself, you're you're just responding.
2: Oh, totally, absolutely. You know, you you've got to focus on life and, and property and all the things that are super important and the you know the stuff that has to be dealt with. It's not the time to start doing introducing new and exciting exotic things. And, of course, the responders will have very specific ways of practising. So those support agencies who might be saying, or, or organisations, if the crisis might be a crisis of uh, reputation for a company, for example, respond, but then also think about what it is you're going to do next.
1: Yeah, the point I would add to it is that's absolutely right. And the work of... Uh Roz Lasker, who is quite an amazing person, and I'm happy to share a link. I I actually wrote a blog about Roz and had the privilege of meeting her in New York City some years ago. Roz is someone who talks a lot about the extent to which you can collaborate during an emergency. You can't actually start doing it then, but if you, you can build, if you've got trust and good relationships between agencies and with community, before emergency hits, that's the sort of thing that helps you respond really quickly and helps you move really effectively in a crisis. So I think it's certainly not the time to start collaborating. <laughs> if you haven't got the relationship, things <laughs> yeah. don't work. And she talks a lot about some of the things that happened uh, during Hurricane uh, Katrina and uh, how the trust wasn't there and people of key emergency authorities didn't have the names and phone numbers of people leading other agencies uh, uh, in their phones. They just did not have a relationship. And so in the crisis, it was very hard to, to respond. So, But I think it's absolutely right that during a crisis, you can't actually start doing an authentic co-design process at that point. But in fact, if you've had been doing some collaboration previously and trust had been built, that becomes a, a really important
0: asset during a crisis. So in your experience with various emergencies and and this kind of goes to both both of you I think I'm curious whether in the in the recovery phase obviously the recovery actions are can be collaborative because that's potentially the way they can go but I'm curious if in the in the recovery and thinking about how do we prevent this or or how do we how do we build those skills I'm thinking back to what you talked about the skilling up portion Do you think there's any focus on building the collaborative skills in that phase typically, or is it pretty much always focused on, like you say, recovery, rebuild, those kinds of things? Mm,
1: Good question. I think, I think it is really important. It's not always easy. I mean, the first point around that is recognition that there is the need to develop some new skills and even more importantly, I think, new ways of thinking, new attitudes. So, so I think before, if, to embark on a new way of, of working, there needs to be some realisation at a fairly profound level that our kind of our typical way of responding isn't actually terribly effective and often it makes things worse. So if that's the case, then it's about the stepping back and let's have a look at it. And so one of the key things that I've found important to talk about is whether an agency sees the community as being a problem to solve or an audience to win over or do they see the community as an asset to work with because that actually changes the language you use it changes that that thinking or that awareness or that that shift in thinking will actually change different behaviors it means people are more open to learning new skills it means that there's a willingness to even taking some baby steps in a different direction but until there's that kind of fundamental shift in thinking you know if you always see the community actually as You know, if the view is they're not very smart, they don't know what's good for them. Uh, they've got limited information. They're highly reactive. They hate us. (laughs) Therefore, it's actually perilous to work with them, you know, or, or to attempt to partner or collaborate with them. Then it doesn't matter what you do. That will actually flow through your behaviors, the messaging, body language, everything. And I think, well, you know, that's, that's the first thing to tackle jumping into a space of let's choose to work with the community as an asset, even if people have reservations about that, and they'll soon learn that the community is an asset if you give them the opportunity to contribute um, and to, to offer, even if you have to move through the phase of listening to uh, grievances that they may have had for quite some
2: time. Yeah, it's that, so true. Um, and I might just add a couple of quick thoughts on a, on a slightly related but, but in a different tangent to that. One is the. Yeah, you know, that that old adage. I mean, it's kind of a military adage, I suppose. But you know, build build skills, capabilities, and relationships in times of peace. Never in times of war, because you know you're too busy finding the war. Um, and that that you know, with that. Taking out the military, you know, kind of analogy that that's kind of what an emergency response is, and the second one actually there's uh, there's three things. The second one is that question you ask Scott requires there to be leadership and awareness by leadership that you need to be building those capabilities and skills, and so it does require that maturity of leadership and/or frameworks that you know I hate to say this, but operationalize collaboration, and, and the third one is it's really interesting, but you know, we are going down the emergency and that, that emergency path. One of the things that we're keen, as Max is kind of alluding to, with with authentic co-design, is this is actually practice change for normal life and normal decision making with corporations and government, and not only an emergency response moment, but because it is practice change, and as you know, can as Max was saying, be scary for government, you know, to use its power differently. Often you do need to be, you need something to have gone wrong before people will kind of go, oh, gosh, we've tried the old ways, how do we do the new? But to be honest, if you ask both Max and I, is that where we think it's most useful, authentic co-design? Probably, and i speak for you, Max, but we just say, no, 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 change normal practice and you'll probably avoid some of these emergencies, the ones that are generated by you, the ones where you know, you've decided to build a bridge in a place where frankly nobody wants it and you didn't tell anybody or you go into a um, a First Nations area and you forgot, you didn't ask them and then you do something appalling and then you're trying to build trust again or you go, you know, uh, so yeah, I guess that's just, I was just thinking about that, that there is the world of other uses for this capability and skill is great.
0: You know, it's kind of tied to some a question I wanted to ask, which was around getting these kinds of projects or initiatives started. And I think you've already touched on on some of these things, but I'm curious to see how do you address kind of the, the non-believers when you're trying to, or, or do you address the non-believers when you're trying to, to move forward in a collaborative way and sort of speaks to how these things, do you need somebody who's a catalyst for this work? Is it always leadership? What
2: a great question. Do you want to go first, Max?
1: Well, I, I think this is one that Ant is really good at answering in terms of uh, in his role and I guess how we worked together on that particular project years ago is that Ant was one who was sort of building support and asking tough questions and I think, I think asking great questions is a, is a way of actually creating a shift and I love the work of Fran Peavy in strategic questioning to do that but the point I want to make about that is I think that the issue is also not dissimilar in the community that the community isn't necessarily automatically ready to do co-design just because government says, hey, let's do a different approach. Come work with us to do this. And that's when they tend to, you know, raise the middle finger. You actually have to build some support and relationships before you can actually start doing the work of figuring out what you're going to do together. So it's not only winning over people in key positions in government or in any sort of large organisation that's sponsoring a process. You actually need to build support in the community as
2: well. It's, yeah, I, I mean that's why I think. It, in fact, I would. As, as Max was saying, you know, you've got to be doing this internally to your organisation, whether it be government or corporate. But if that community readiness is not there, then it's it's really challenging, and that's where, you know, that's where the we got that yin and yang. As, as Max was saying, he's just like the he's like the community whisperer, in my mind. The thing about the internal readiness, and I should actually step back very quickly, Scott, and explain to your listeners that authentic co-design has six steps in it. And we can go through those. It's got five principles, as Max talked about before. So it's a principles based approach with six steps. The first step is, you know, they're all important, but the first, you know, no, no one of your child is your favorite, but the other. The first step is is readiness, and that readiness is so critical and there's a point in it where you have to make a judgment call to decide whether this is going to work or not. And as Max was saying, if there's a community that's tone deaf to to you saying, oh, really, trust us now, even though we've done appalling things, um, you know, it's never going to work. So you have to invest in building their capability to do that, desire to do that, to work with you, which is often just showing them that you're real, authentic and practicing it. Internal to to government, for example, or internal to corporations, you ask the question about how do you deal with the people that say no? And I'd actually flip that a bit and say, work out where they sit and how important they are in the structure. So if you've got the regional president of the corporation saying no, you definitely need to work with them. And if she's kind of going, oh, I think I'm feeling uncomfortable about this, or he's going, oh, I think we might have to, you know, or, then you need to work with them, because you need to build what we call in authentic co-design a stickable mandate. If those people that are saying no are, are sideways, they're tangential to the actual practice or process you're trying to build, they're just noise. And in fact, the internal game, and I will call it that, is working out Who is the unhelpful noise and who is the critical naysayers or critical advocates? And if you can narrow that down and get your coalition of mandate, you know, up through the kind of hierarchy, because everyone's got a boss. The minister has a boss, you know, and so she wants to feel like that she can go to her boss and go, Hey, boss, I'm doing well. You know, so if you can get that line solid, they're the critical ones. And what you need to do is help them understand that it's safe. It's actually a probably less costly way of doing what you've been currently doing and not getting a result.
0: You're looking for people in in authority to sort of pick up the ball and carry it forward. So you focus on best bang for buck. And then it's does it spread? You don't want to spend all your time, I'm assuming, focusing on the folks with authority, you do have to spread it out. And do you even go as far as in, in the process, or do you see value in going as far as having people who are not connected to the issue be part of the discussion?
2: Absolutely. Oh yeah, no, don't get me wrong. I, I'm more talking about the naysayers. Yes, absolutely. You need to there are, you know, there's parts of any organisation, you know, I don't know, let's just say you've got the operational part of the organisation, you might have a scientific part of the organisation and you might have a engagement part. Let's just take those three elements. They will need to work together. Now, there may be people in those areas, the technical people, who, you know, they've got to go parallel to this. And so you do have to build a coalition of the willing or at least a coalition of the I'm not going to stand in your way. Um, and so having having those people and and you mentioned that spark that catalyst that you know we we call it an authentic co-design the co-design champion in the organization there's got to be someone who's going to stick their toe into the freezing cold boiling or boiling water first and go all right let's go and you know it's a challenging job for them and there's a certain type of leadership quality they have there's a certain probably hierarchy that they may need to be able to pull it off. You know, they do need to be able to direct some people and then they need to be able to work with their colleagues to help them. That's inside an organisation. And, Max, you've often talked about kind of, you know, the critical community leaders as well.
1: Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, I think the idea that you have to have everybody totally on board with it before you do it is kind of ridiculous. Mm. You need to have people with enough influence that they're able to maybe challenge the naysayers and basically it's about shifting the narrative to this will never work or we've never done this before to, you know what, we've probably got nothing to lose, let's just check this out, let's just give it a try. Even if we actually have reservations or our expectations are low and I have to say I am amazed at how many times the community is willing to show up and talk with people when they feel like they've been dudded so many times they still turn up uh, even if they're coming with many reservations and mistrust. But uh, in our own example, we, we were talking about with the, uh, this uh, mine fire, what was lovely at the end of the process is having the community, the people who were very angry, uh, talking to the people in the EPA and other people in, and scientists and others and saying, Gee, we did a good job. Let let's get a, let's have a group photo. Let's all get in and have a photo yeah. together. This was fantastic, yeah. and we all did great. and And one of the, one of the things that was sort of lovely uh, through the process. I know, sort of, I've I've digressed now from that whole thing about how you, you, you get momentum for change. But I think it was really lovely that we the community people who were very influential but the most antagonistic become the champions in the end of the process for the community, and they were saying wow, you know, if like we could have imagined a great process, it would be something like this or this exceeded our expectations. And what what also eventuated is that just a, a growing respect on their part for the knowledge of scientists and public servants who really cared a great deal. And so their whole perception changed because they got to know these people and got to know their, appreciate their knowledge and skills and and their mm. and their, their interests. So... That was just one of the things that unfolded there, which was really lovely.
0: You know, I, I, I want to dig into that idea of sort of what does the end result look like. But before I get to that question, I kind of want to ask about the kind of problem that this is suited to. And it seems like it kind of has to be a pretty contentious, thorny, ugly kind of problem. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on the problem side of it. So where, where do you take this approach? Where, where does it make the most sense?
1: Yeah, we talk a lot about complexity in the course that we've developed and in the the manual we've written, the guide. It really, it suits issues that are complex, that are hard to resolve. So there's a number of things that that, that I think a few boxes that needs to tick. One is it's got to be something that is worth the investment. So it's got to be substantial enough. It has to be something that really matters to the community. I don't believe it needs to be something where there is a current crisis to get the energy to work. Mm -hmm. So... An example, I'd say, is complex urban planning. They've got the horror stories about trying to do planning when they've done something fairly conventional. They can anticipate if they're going to look at some major infrastructure or they're looking at some urban development or redevelopment that's going to change the nature of a neighbourhood, they have enough of a track record to know. We kind of have a pretty good idea how this is going to play out if we use our, our conventional approach. So in those situations, I think that you can get in early and say we we can see what would happen if we do what we normally do. Let's actually look at a different approach. And I think so for anything that is really complex, you know, and and one of the projects we're just starting to work on is is looking at how communities who are likely to be um, who are marginalised and who may be at risk of not being covered by the COVID vaccination program. How do we actually connect with those people? And make sure that they're Part of that whole system of rolling it out. And so we've been engaged to help them to co design an approach with people who are in those communities to actually get the messaging right, to build relationships and build confidence in the process. Because we know that if it's just something that's planned by health professionals to roll it out, probably won't get it right. So I think that there's a number of complex challenges. If you know that actually it's going to be tricky enough to get traction, that you're going to be, you're going to miss out a really important input in addressing a complex issue. That's where authentic co-design is really useful.
2: Yeah, that it's that word complexity. I just, I totally agree that, and complexity has so many axes. Uh, as as we started, we were talking about complexity as crisis management or, or responding to, re- but as Max is highlighting, complexity could be technical complexity you know people want to understand what's in a vaccine or it could be socio-demographic complexity these are groups that are marginalized you know so it's that whole we we absolutely think that you know most major projects in many sectors that are worth doing are going to have complexity it may even just be stakeholder complexity it might be a simple thing that everyone agrees with but there's actually an incredibly complex stakeholder landscape you know so yeah, that's the, it's complexity is the critical kind of underlying factor. If you haven't got complexity, there's probably, and this is me speaking to two engagement professionals, as not one, I bet you guys have tools in your toolkit that, you know, you could probably go through a different pathway. But if you've got complexity, authentic co-design is a good way.
0: It's always interesting to me that collaboration in and of itself is a complex complex approach because there's so many factors, like you say, elements and axes and what I would call dynamics at play. And so we're using a complex approach to, to work on complex issues. And so I've always just reflected on that and sort of marveled at, you know, here we are trying to, we always try to simplify things and often it doesn't work in our favor.
2: Can can I tell a quick story because that's a beautiful kind of segue, Scott, to the genesis of authentic co-design because it's actually a story of of kind of that. We, Max and I, as, as we said, have been doing, you know, done this together a few times. We'd, we'd kind of, you know, had had experiences in different places. And what was lacking, we felt, was, you know, sorry, this is a bureaucratic speak, but like the code, the codification of how to you know, the, the thing that simplified it so you could pick it up and go, how do you do it? And we were approached by, a, in Australia, a federal entity that was dealing with a, a very difficult and persistent organic chemical and then another major agency that was seen by the community to be the group that had spread this chemical. Been and had been unknown, but, um, you know, there we are. And so we were asked by this group to... Oh, can you give us, what did I say? Oh, can you give us a standard operating procedure for co-design? And you know, we just well, we laughed like you did, Scott, then because knowing what it meant. Um, and so the genesis of authentic co-design was actually trying to almost put a bound around what you as exactly as you say, the complexity of collaborating together on something. And so by doing that. What we did was we codified it. Yes, there are six steps. The fact that all six steps essentially just constantly ask you to use your own judgment and ask you, you know, oh, well, and then from experience, well, you get to this point and all of a sudden the naysayers are going to say this. Well, you know, here's the kind of thing. Uh, is it what you do here? And constantly refer back to the five principles, the principles based, because there's always, as you would know, Scott, and your listeners would know, there's always going to be something come up and it's not written in the book
0: i'm thinking you know you you have a room full of people and you change one person and it's now a different room Mm -hmm. you have to you have to think and approach things differently or you get somebody new for instance that that can be as simple i often talk about the there's no recipe for collaboration you can start with a recipe that makes muffins and end up with i don't know concrete or a tree or whatever (laughs) you like so I kind of want to to swing back around to this idea of what of sort of the end of this process, and what kinds of things have you been seeing coming out sort of the the results side of this? Maybe some things that you didn't expect to see or came out of nowhere that you kind of went holy that I, I certainly wasn't expecting to hear that or see that. And I think you even mentioned a few examples earlier. But Max, is there anything that jumps jumps out at you as something unexpected that comes out of this type of process?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny now when I reflect because I still get surprised by things that I see and I'm the one that's sort of talking about the benefits of this approach and yet things still happen that surprise me. One of the things that was a, a wonderful surprise I think was just how quickly people who were regarded as government adversaries, how quickly they shifted to being the most important ambassadors of a process. As soon as they felt like they were genuinely involved and listened to and valued, that how quickly that shifted. So that was kind of, and that was interesting because of continuing to play the role, they became people who would challenge people who are more skeptical. They then were, you know, wanting to move, I guess, into a different phase of now being champions, from being champions about an issue to now being champions of the process and what came out of it. So that, for me, is kind of one of the things that's gratifying. And that sort of expresses itself in different ways in different projects. And so so that's, that's one thing. The other thing I think that for me, which is sometimes takes me uh, back a bit, is the people who often internally are the most reluctant, kind of at the end, when if it does work well, sometimes they're not quite as enthusiastic still. They're still saying, but we're still, still happy to own it. Yeah, we took responsibility for that process and we'll put that on our CV and talk about it. But it's it's not uh, sometimes it's not like an enthusiastic proud achievement moment it's sometimes it's more well yeah we, we got this yeah we did something different but it doesn't necessarily change the modus operandi for looking at all issues it's kind of like uh, something that was exceptional so it takes a while i think it takes multiple goes at doing this to understand the benefit of how this approach can be of value mm. just having one project that works well doesn't suddenly shift the culture of an organization. Mm. Uh, it means, Phew, we've got that one out of the way, let's actually work on the next thing. And they'll nearly always go to their traditional default position. Um, so it takes it takes a long time to embed a new practice and a new way of thinking in an
2: organization. Do you know there's um probably there's probably two things that I'll talk about that surprised me. One actually comes from It won't surprise you, Scott, to know that Max and I used co-design to co-design, authentic co-design. And so it's a bit meta, I know, but we were, because we knew we had to shift some thinking within a certain agencies, And there was this one moment when there was a big national meeting of of multi-jurisdictional agencies, very senior people, and a particular, uh, I don't want to give away the organisations, but a... Uh, Someone who was very senior in a very hierarchical organization, almost one with kind of, you know, almost like a military hierarchy, so to speak, a very, very kind of, you know, line, you know, hierarchical type. So we're all sitting in this meeting and we're working through helping people understand how they might apply co-design within this particular context, this this persistent organic compound. And the room was completely quiet. And this very, very taciturn bloke suddenly just just out loud went, oh, oh, I get it now, and then replayed to the whole room pretty much what we'd been saying for the previous hour, but in his words. And that's, it shouldn't have surprised me, but it made me realise that it's kind of a gestalt moment. You know, like you either kind of get this stuff because of felt experience and need, or or there's a moment where you suddenly get it. That kind of was a really interesting insight and surprised me. It was also a beautiful moment. The second one is one from that coal mine fire that that we talked about earlier. And one of the principles of authentic co-design is foster mutual learning. And in that room that Max described earlier, we had a series of very, very highly qualified air scientists, they were, and they went into this, I you know, and I don't want to, I'm certainly not, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but they, they didn't expect to learn anything from the community, you know, because they were experts, and we we're talking about their field. And what surprised them as we got to the end of the process, and this, then this surprised me, <laughs> was that they suddenly realised the community designed a thing, and the scientists went, oh, you know, this is, better than the one we would have designed, came in under budget, it measured more parameters in more places, and they decided to use technology that, you know, the scientists had told them about, but they'd never thought the community wanted to use it in a way the scientists hadn't thought of applying it. And all of a sudden, you could see the scientists go, huh, wow, these guys are kind of being really helpful. And I guess that was wonderful. That was a wonderful benefit.
0: And it plays out over time too, doesn't it? it? It's a case that sort of goes back to your emergency example where the trust you build after is actually the trust that leads you through the next yep.
2: thing or what have you. Does that shown up for you as well? I think as Max described, um, in that particular circumstance, the, the organization, which I've left a number of years ago, but the organization did have to go back a number of times. There was a, there was a moment where some of the technology hadn't worked as expected. Um, and they had to go back. It just didn't wasn't to the specification, and they chose to go back to the community and say, "Hey, we tested that, that stuff. It doesn't work like we like. We're not comfortable that it's giving us the results." And they they, said, they told them that, and they said, "We're thinking about this," and the community went, "Oh, yeah, that seems sensible." And you know, so and that was a number of years back uh, after, and rightly the community could have felt, "Oh, hang on, this is taking a long time for you to do the thing you said you would," but they understood. So I, I realized we're
0: coming towards the end, and I just wanted before we have a couple of sort of last, almost rapid-fire type of questions. I was curious if there was anything else you wanted to add that maybe I hadn't asked you about.
2: Are we supposed to plug the website, Max AuthenticCoDesign.com? <laughs> we're really bad at marketing.
1: <laughs> yes, so we get so yes, wrapped up in talking about this stuff, we we forget about yeah. So um, I suppose we could, yes
2: design.com <laughs> And there's actually a couple of, um, that was my best radio voice. There's a couple of, um, there's a course that's really more for the kind of practitioners. And then there's a course for letting people, you know, kind of an introductory course, you know, for, you know, you might you might send that to your boss and say, hey, do this. So you can work out how to, to do this stuff and then get a bit more invested deeper.
0: Well, that's awesome. I'll make sure that um, there are links to that in the show notes when when we put this together. So I've got a couple of kind of quick questions to wrap up. And I, I know you guys have worked together, uh, obviously, a fair bit. You've you know built some courses. you built a whole sort of approach together or thought through it together. Anthony, how would you say Max makes you a better collaborator?
2: Oh, wow, what a good question, Scott. You know, one of Max's superpowers is that he sits there, well, or, you know, virtually, as it's been through COVID before, and he just looks at things from a very different perspective than me and he so constructively pulls me up and goes, you know, and, and it's never in a, in a you know, an assertive way or, you know, it's not in a, you know, comes at me hard, aggressive way. It's more just like, wow, have you thought about it from this direction? And because it's so, you know, he, he's just, his perspective is so different, I'm always kind of going, Oh my goodness, of course. Why on earth hadn't I realized that? That's why, and, and that makes for such better collaboration because I guess we trust each other. And, um, he doesn't, he's free, he's comfortable to go, How about this? And that, that skill to, to say something that is hard for people to hear in a way that they hear it makes much better collaborators.
0: Nice. I, I know I appreciate that kind of thing when it comes up that somebody can can make you think in a different way without challenging kind of the reason you're thinking the way you normally think so it's it's a safe way of thinking even so max what would you say is uh as sort of skill or, or ability to make you a better collaborator
1: yeah look there's many things i can point to the thing that stands out for me um is uh, this genuine enthusiasm and curiosity is that sense I get working with and is, um, you know, there's always something different we could consider and we could give it a go. It's that sense we could give this a go and the willingness to take, willingness to take something on. So I think it's a, it's a great quality and something that's often absent in, in government. There's a lot of great people, great people in government, they should be careful saying that, but being willing to say, wow, well, what if and, and why not? and let's give this a try and so it's just that a very infectious uh, enthusiasm but also the ability to to build support i think with others is to build confidence in um you know, internally in addressing those who have very real fears and just being able to ask really good questions and there's, there's a there's a bravery there in being willing to jump into areas that are unfamiliar but willing to give it a go because it just kind of makes sense so it's also it's a very uh, intuitive ability i think to seize the moment see the opportunities not waste time on things that maybe aren't going to be a good net gain conversation or battle so about sort of also understanding which battles to pick which people to build support with that that is actually a very special skill and one that we we identify regularly and one that you've talked about scott with your spark plug and was a, a brilliant spark plug but also knows how to connect with spark plugs in organizations
2: Nice. Oh, Max, you sweet man. Thank
1: you. <laughs> well, you did say something nice about me.
0: <laughs> Next you know, we're going to have a line of T-shirts that says, I'm a spark plug. So <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, also, I always ask people I talk to what their book suggestions are. So what would be a book you would typically give as a gift or, or, or maybe it's a, another kind of resource, but something that you would regularly recommend or give to somebody? Well, the one I think
1: I may have mentioned in previous conversations is a book called New Power. And can't tell you who the authors are, but it's about how movements happen, uh, contemporary movements. And it talks about how if you want to create a, a movement, in this century, I think what we're trying to all do is be part of a movement where we're all learning to solve or tackle complex challenges well together. It's a movement of thinking differently. And it says that you can only call it a movement if it's going to move without you. So to me, it's something. I think it's, it's a great book. Um, it's about it's, it's contemporary and it, it's basically talking about how change happens. And again, it's very much about principles. So I love it. So that's a book that I've been reading. It's not not light reading necessarily, but it's also not really full on either. It's something I can read at night time uh, without um, keeping me awake too long. How about you, Ed? I
2: mean, in the sector, I, I'm, I've been. I really enjoyed so late you know, kind of, everything is kind of pre-COVID is forgotten. But just before that hit, a colleague and a friend, actually, Mark Elliott came out with a thing called collaboration design, which is a, a really nice, it's, it's. I, I'm into kind of codifying things that are really complex and it's a beautiful way, a step-by-step guide to kind of collaboration. I know there's lots out there, but I just like Mark's use of language and, and the way he kind of uses stories. As you can tell, I like to tell stories. Um, he uses stories to kind of explain the complexity. So that would be my um, kind of, you know, in the sector type book. I've got to say, though, my bedtime reading at the moment is something a bit heavy, which is um, Yuval Noah Harari's kind of Sapiens kind of trilogy, and I'm almost at the end of the third, um, and it is marvellous. Like, it's about the origins of humanity. He's a, he's a historian philosopher. It's about the origins of humanity a history of how we got there and kind of where we're going and if you if you can and he's, he's a very engaging writer and if you can stick with it oh my goodness it's wonderful food for the brain
0: I'm not sure I would be able to handle something like that sort of as a pre-bed kind of thing but uh, it sounds fascinating, <laughs> fascinating and I'll have to follow up on that one you know I really want to say thanks for coming and walking through some of this again and we, we kind of went down a couple of new roads this this time around so it certainly wasn't the same as as our first try at it, I really appreciate you taking the time. So, th- thank you for for joining me today.
1: Well, it's been fun. It was even more fun this time. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think let's think about the first time as a rehearsal. This was far more professional. Well done. Thanks heaps, Scott.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Much of the conversation today resonated with some of my own experience. A couple of things that Anth mentioned really hit home. In particular, his points about the kind of leadership it takes to step out and to try something new, to basically say, well, let's give this a go. I've had the opportunity to have two leaders in my career who were willing to try something a bit radical, and I really understand how rare those qualities are. The other thing that has stuck in my mind at the moment is when Max mentioned that he was a bit surprised when people inside an organization who have had success in collaboration fall back to the default, way of working, the non-collaborative way. And then Anth followed this with a comment about a gestalt moment when authentic co-design suddenly clicked for a senior leader. It sort of made me ponder a little bit about how we might move collaboration closer to being a standard way of doing business. I think we're gonna need a lot more of those gestalt moments. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations, Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.